Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I am Doug Sweeney here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. We want to begin this episode by giving you our Easter greetings. Because the Lord Jesus has risen from the grave, we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Today on the show, we have one of our colleagues here to share with us about three recent books he has published. I was mentioning to him just a few minutes ago. This is a first for me. Uh, Dr. Gerald Bray is so prolific that we have three books to talk about in one interview. Many of you know him already. Kristen will introduce him in just a minute. Uh, Let me say that I am a great admirer of Gerald Bray and have been for many years. And I count it a great privilege now to serve here together with him at Beeson and to count him as my friend. Thank you, Gerald, for being with us. And Kristen, can you please tell us a little bit more about Dr. Gerald Bray? Yes, and welcome everyone to the Beeson Podcast. Uh, As Doug has already mentioned, we have uh, Dr. Gerald Bray with us on the show today. He serves as Research Professor of Divinity here at Beeson Divinity School. He first came to Beeson in 1993 to serve as our Anglican Chair of Divinity. And he is now serving with our Anglican students as we are searching for a new Anglican Chair of Divinity. Uh, Dr. Bray is a prolific author, um, having published about 30 books. And he's also a minister in the Church of England. And that's all I'm going to say at this moment, because I want to give you the opportunity, Dr. Bray, to uh, say more about yourself. Uh, Most of our listeners know you already, but for those who don't, uh, can you give us a brief um, introduction of yourself and let us know uh, what you've been up to recently in your work here at Beeson. Yes, thank you very much. Well, as you say, right now I'm I'm filling in in what is essentially my old job as Anglican Chair of Divinity here at Beeson Divinity School. I came to Beeson, as you mentioned, in 1993, having taught before then for 12 years in London And before that, I served in a parish also in London. And before that, I trained for the ministry in Cambridge. Uh, And before that, I was doing doctoral work in Paris. Uh, So uh, I go back a long way, you know, one way or or another. I've been in uh, university life for over 50 years, and there doesn't seem to be any sign of of stopping uh, just at the moment. But I started off in early church history, patristic studies, having done my undergraduate work in classics, in Latin and Greek. And then my teaching load in London led me to develop an interest in the, the Reformation, particularly courses in Anglican. And of course, that's what I've been doing off and on ever since. And most of what I've published over the years has had to do with that. Uh, But I've also published other things. Uh, I I published a systematic theology about 10 years ago, uh, a historical theology in 2014, a commentary on the pastoral epistles in 2019, and I'm just uh, putting the finishing touches on a history of Christianity in the British Isles 
which will be coming out this June. So I have, I have wider interests as well. But um, this is what you do when you're in, in retirement. You know, you're never so busy as when you retire. And that's where I am at the moment. Thank you for being there, Dr. Bray, and for continuing to be such a blessing to all of us at Beeson. Uh, we do have a lot to talk about today, three different books to which we want to introduce our listeners. Uh, the first one is called Preaching the Word with John Chrysostom. Probably some of our listeners know who Chrysostom was, but not all of them. Uh, could you begin simply by telling us who this man was uh, and why his preaching was significant? Yes, John Chrysostom, of course, Chrysostom was not his name. It means golden-mouthed, and it was a, a nickname given to him about a 100 years after he died. So he would not have recognized it during his own lifetime. But he was the son of a government official in Antioch, which, of course, is well known from the New Testament, and was born there sometime around the year 350. So at that time, Christianity had become a legal religion, but it wasn't as yet the official religion of the Roman Empire. That happened when John was about 30 years old, and Uh, He was ordained around that time, and he preached in Antioch uh, for about 10 years and specialized in biblical uh, exposition, in particular the epistles of Paul. And then the emperor in Constantinople uh, heard about him and heard that he he was a a great preacher and well-liked and invited him to the imperial capital to, to take over there. Uh, John didn't want to go, but when the emperor summons you, you go. And it, it, it didn't work out because John didn't hesitate to criticize what he saw as the misdeeds of the of the imperial court. And he fell out with people. It's a long story in, in some ways, but in the end, he was sent into exile. And he went into exile in a, a small place, not all that far away from Antioch. And people who had known him uh, in those days went to visit him. And this was regarded as potentially dangerous, uh, you know, for the regime. And so he was ordered to transfer his, his exile to the Black Sea coast. And unfortunately, on his way there, he died from exposure to the cold. Very, un- very sad thing. But after his death, the next emperor, the son of the one who had exiled him, repented of his father's actions, uh, had his corpse removed to Constantinople, and basically turned him into a, a national hero. And he, he's been so regarded ever since. He's the most prolific Greek Christian writer that ha- that we have now. Uh, probably not the most prolific in his own lifetime, but writings of others, people like Origen, have been lost or destroyed. And what has been preserved, from what has been preserved, more of Chrysostom has been preserved than of anyone else. So we have a, a you know quite a corpus of material available. And most of it, in fact, almost all of it, are sermons, one one kind or another. Well, that segues nicely into a question that I have about your book. You mentioned mm-hmm. that John Chrysostom was known for his preaching, and we have so many of his sermons. You concentrate in your book on sermons that he gave on Genesis, Matthew, John, and Romans. Uh, what can we learn from his preaching, in particular sermons on these books, And what are some of the themes from his preaching that you brought out in your own book? Right. Well, first of all, I wanted to concentrate on his preaching because he was a preacher and that was what he was known for. 
Of course, he's left a sermon series on, on many uh, books of the Bible. But in a short book, you have to make a choice. You have to decide, you know, what you're going to concentrate on. And although there are four books that I've concentrated on, in fact, there are three different subjects. Genesis, which is creation, because he's only, he only preached on the first three chapters. Matthew and John, of course, go together as the Gospels, uh, his portrait of Jesus. Um, and Romans, I chose... Uh, it's Paul's most uh, important letter, and he was very much dedicated to the Apostle Paul. The thing we learned from Chrysostom, above all else, is how to apply doctrine to practical life. The, 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 the century in which Chrysostom lived was a time of great uh, productivity in the life of the church. I mean, this was the era of the great creeds, you know, when the, and the, the great uh, arguments over Christology and so on. And we t- today tend to read those things. You know, we, we concentrate on the doctrine. But we forget that this doctrine had to be communicated to ordinary people who had other concerns, uh, you know. And Chrysostom is the link, really, between the, the doctrine of the church, with which he was fully in sympathy, and the practical requirements of, of a pastor. And uh, we see this in Genesis, for example, like most of the fathers of the church, he had to bring home to people uh, that creation is good, uh, that the world that God made is good, it's meant to be used. But that, of course, gives us a responsibility. How do we use it? You know, what do we do with it? And we can't misuse it or abuse it. And so he takes us through the days of creation and shows how uh, at each stage um, God was preparing a world uh, for human habitation. And he said that everything in the world is designed for our benefit. And so he, he goes into that in great detail. When he comes to the life of Jesus, he concentrates on, on Jesus the pastor. He's very taken with Jesus' encounters with, with people. And this is why, particularly John's gospel, he doesn't concentrate so much on the, the farewell discourses and so on, you know, the theological parts, although he does mention them. I mean, he, that's not his concentration. He's much more concerned with Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, you know, those encounter, the man born blind, those encounters, and he brings them to life. And he, he says, well, this is, you know, our relationship with God in Christ, that we see in Christ this. And Romans uh, also, perhaps the most interesting thing uh, about this is that John sees the last chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 16, with that long list of, of members of the congregation in Rome, as actually one of the most important chapters. I mean, modern readers, of course, they think of it as an appendix, you know, that Paul expounds everything, and then he adds this as a kind of extra at the end, say hi to so-and-so and, you know, greet somebody else and all the rest of it. But for John, this was very important because he said, this shows that Paul was talking to real people in a real congregation, people who were very ordinary, you know, we don't know much about them, and he didn't know any more about them than we do. But they mattered, and they were on his heart, and it was for them that he was writing. And this was the whole point, you see, that he said, Paul wrote Romans for us, you know, for ordinary people like us, and we have to see it in this way. But he saw himself very much as walking in the footsteps of Paul. That was his model. 
uh, he, he took Paul as a model for preaching and for application of, of the preaching to the pastoral needs of the church. And all the things that we read in, in Paul's epistles, all the controversies, you know, between Jews and Christians, between uh, different types of Christian, you know, people, some people who use their freedom to, to eat meat and sacrifice to idols and this kind of thing, and, and not worrying about the consciences of others. You know, it, it, John would sort of tackle all these issues and say well you know this is it's the application how do you apply it how do you and how do you work this out in, in, in your everyday life? And so it provides an, a nice balance, if you like, to what we normally read about the fathers and their arguments over, you know, the divinity of Christ or whatever, um, which is very important. And John was very much on the what we would call the orthodox side today, but he applied it to people's lives. And so that's what matters. Okay, Preaching the Word with John Chrysostom is the first of the three books we want to feature today. The second is called The Attributes of God, an Introduction. Uh, Gerald, would you tell our readers, what is that book about? The Attributes of God, obviously, but what are you trying to accomplish in this introduction to the Attributes of God? Oh, yes. Well, thank you for this. This is part of a series, a short introduction to various aspects of Christian doctrine, and I was more or less asked to write on the subject of the attributes of God. Actually, I was sent a list of all the books, that, the volumes that would be written, and it turned out that the only one that hadn't been taken up by somebody else was this one. So I, I was given a choice, but if you see what I mean, like Henry Ford, uh, you know, you, you could buy any car from him as long as it was black. I could write any book uh, for Crossway as long as it was on the attributes of God. <laughs> so that's what I did. But I was glad to do it because the attributes of God, this is a subject which has been understudied uh, in, in Christian history, uh, and particularly in recent times. Every systematic theology will have a chance chapter about it. You know, God is invisible, immortal, and so on. But if you read my book, uh, the, the place to start, I think, in a way, is with the appendix at the end, because I originally wrote what is now the appendix as my introductory chapter, and with a reason, because what I do there is I show, uh, by, t by quoting different theologians over the centuries, how basically, and particularly in modern times, uh, you know, you pick up a systematic theology, turn to the section on the attributes of God, and you realize that the author has just thrown down off the top of his head uh, whatever comes into mind, you know, and, 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 and all these attributes are, are sort of listed, uh, in, in, uh, but in no particular order and, and without any very clear internal logic. So what I tried to do, basically, um, is sort this out, you know, put it in order, put, uh, try and make some sense of it, try and decide what is an attribute and what is not, because that's another question, you see. I mean, for example, uh, some of these lists will say that the wrath of God is, an at is a divine attribute. But actually it's not, because if the wrath of God were a divine attribute, God would be angry all the time. You know, just as he's invisible all the time, <laughs> you, couldn't, you couldn't have it any other way. Whereas, in fact, of course, wrath is, is the way we perceive God at work, you know, at different times uh, in his dealings with us or with the creation in general. But it's the outworking in time 
time and space and in our experience of who and what he is in himself. You know, we call it wrath because that's what we see. But of course, from God's point of view, this is a manifestation of his love and of his justice and uh, you know those things. So we have to be careful about how we how we use this terminology, and and basically that's what I'm trying to do in the book is to get people to be more careful about the language they use when they do, when they talk about God. I'd like you to talk more about the attributes that you um, cover in your book. I noticed that you divided your book into God's essential attributes as they are in themselves and as we perceive them, and into God's relational attributes. Yes. Also, as they are in themselves and as we perceive them. Can you talk to us about these two categories and some of the attributes you address? Yes, I can. The difference between essential and relational is the same as the difference between what in theology would be called the nature or the being and the persons of God. So just as we say that God is three persons in one nature, one divine nature, the relational attributes are the are the attributes of his persons, and the essential attributes are, are the attributes of his nature, of his being. For example, invisibility is an attribute of his being. When God says he wants us to be like him, he doesn't want us to become invisible, because in his being, he's completely different from us. And so... We don't really know what invisibility is uh, as a positive characteristic. Uh, we just know that it's not visible. It's a negative in, in that sense. And so we confess that about God, but we can't really say, you know, what it is. I mean, if, if you're invisible, well, there's no way of describing you. I mean, you just can't do that. So that's that. But his relational attributes, of course, his love for us and, you know, when he says, be holy, even as I am holy, this is a sharing of something which is true of him, which he wants also to be true of us. But if I take the holiness, for example, in what way is God holy? Well, God is holy because he's separate, he's different, you know, from anything and everything else. But we are holy, first of all, because he has chosen us and separated us from the world. And basically, we, we work out our holiness, the, the holiness in us by obeying his law, by conforming to his will. So, of course, when we talk about holiness, it's something we perceive, you know, what is God like? Well, God wants this, that, and the other. And so I do what God wants, um, you know, and, and therefore demonstrate my relationship with him. And, you know, this, this is what holiness means in my life. But, of course, you can't really say that, that God obeys himself, you know, because God has a will of, uh, naturally, and, uh, you know, he just he just lives as he is. I mean, he's not obedient to himself. So without the creation, without us, the concept of holiness wouldn't exist. Or if I put it a different way, God is Lord, you see, but you, uh, we, we talk about him as Lord, but you can only be Lord if there's something to be Lord of. And so it's a relational thing, you see, that God is Lord of creation, God is Lord of the world, or something like this. But in and of himself, he's not Lord because there's nothing to be Lord of. But on the other hand, if you say God is love, God is love in himself without the creation because the love of God is shown in the love of the persons of the Trinity for each other. And this is where the subtlety comes in, because the love is, is fulfilled in their inner relationship. But the, Lord, the concept of lordship doesn't apply, because 
the Father is not Lord of the Son or Lord of the Holy Spirit. They're all equal. You have to distinguish these terms according to what is true in and of itself and and how we perceive them, uh, what is true in relation to us. And that's basically what I do in the book. I try to make that distinction. And as if a book about the preaching of John Chrysostom and a book about these attributes of God were not blessing enough for the rest of us. There's a third book about which we want to talk today entitled Anglicanism, a Reformed Catholic Tradition. What does that mean, Dr. Bray? What kind of Anglicanism do you want to promote? And what does it mean to call Anglicanism a Reformed Catholic Tradition? Oh, well, yes. Well, this is another book that I was asked to write and asked to write, I think, because the the term Anglicanism has become very popular in recent years. Many people are turning to the Anglican Church or various manifestations of the Anglican Church looking for something or other. And it's not always clear what they think that they're going to find. And for me, of course, having been brought up in it and, and, you know, trained in it and so on, it's very frustrating to meet people who claim to be Anglican but don't have a clue what it's all about. So I, I said, well, I'll, I'll sit and write a book and, and describe it. And it's Catholic. The, the Catholicity is to do with what we share with the entire Christian world. Um, you know, Protestants, both Lutheran and Reformed, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, and so on, uh, that we are part of the mainstream Christian tradition. We're not a sect. Uh, we're not a heresy of some kind. Um, and, you know, and all the basic things, uh, the doctrine of God, the, the scripture, and, and so on, we are at one, um, you know, with the entire Christian world. Um, but we're also Reformed because... Of course, Anglicanism, as we now understand it, uh, is a product of the Reformation. Um, I mean, had there been no Martin Luther, there would be no Anglicanism, at least not in the the way we know it. Um, And we have to recognize that heritage. I mean, we believe in justification by faith alone. Um, uh, You know, uh, we, we stand on this. We stand on the doctrine of sola scriptura that the scripture is the supreme authority in matters of faith. Um, uh, we believe in uh, the uh, priesthood of all believers. Um, you, you know that, that uh, there isn't a hierarchy within the church uh, of superior people and inferior people. Um, uh, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And things like this, you see, that make us definitely Protestant. Um, and... Uh, and, and we try to keep these things in, in, in balance. Um, and, I mean, there are things about the Anglican uh, tradition that we're not particularly proud of. I mean, nobody's particularly proud of the fact, you know, that Henry VIII wanted to annul his marriage, and that's what led him to break with Rome. Um, you know, that's not <laughs> something we boast about. Um, although it, it's interesting to note that uh, at the beginning, there was a point where it seemed quite likely that the Pope would grant him his annulment. Uh, you know, he might be persuaded to do that. Um, but the person who came out most firmly against that was actually Martin Luther. Um, you know, who thought that Henry had been treat- had treated his wife extremely badly. Um, so you know, it's, it's, it gets very complicated from that point of view. Um, but I want to bring all that out because. 
uh, one of the problems is that people see a certain aspect of, Ang of the Anglican world and they latch on to that. And it's particularly true uh, people who come from more evangelical Protestant traditions. Um, they tend to be attracted by what you might call the sound and light performance. Uh, you know, people dressing up in fancy robes and prancing around and doing and all that kind of thing. Um, the liturgy. Um, failing to see that, that this is the expression of something which, uh, you know, is a, co a coherent and consistent theology um, underneath, and that that's what really matters. Um, I mean, God doesn't care, you know, what clothes you're wearing uh, when, when you celebrate the, the, the Eucharist, but he does care about what's going on in your heart. And, um, you know, it's, it's trying to get people to see that dimension of it. So it's it's basically an attempt to clear the ground and say, well, you know, if you're interested in Anglicanism, this is what it is. And um, it's been interesting to see the reactions. Dr. Bray, you end your book looking at Anglicanism today, describing it as a global network of Episcopally ordered churches. Mm -hmm. Where are Anglicans today in the world and how has Anglicanism taken different shapes? And perhaps if you have time, maybe you can speak to what you see as the future of Anglicanism. Yes, well, the Anglican communion or the Anglican world has become uh, a global network of churches, um, mainly, uh, of course, as an offshoot of the British Empire. I mean, it was, the, you know, the British who took everything to Africa, India, and so on, and colonized Australia, New Zealand, uh, and all the rest of it. So it is an extension of this um, it has spilled over uh, to some degree into other countries um, so that now there are flourishing Anglican churches in places like Argentina and Chile, which were never British colonies, um, parts of Africa that never were. Uh, but in, say, his, the historic lands of, of, of uh, Europe, Anglicans only exist uh, basically as foreigners. Um, you know, the, if you go to Paris or Berlin or somewhere like that, and look for an Anglican church, it's probably an English-speaking church catering mainly to foreigners rather than uh, an indigenous church, not like the Baptists, for example, um, you know, who, who evangelize uh, in those countries and create uh, local churches, national churches. So it tends to be that. The differences that you come across are usually to do with the way the church was originally uh, planted there, so that in some cases, for example, you have very evangelical missionaries who went to uh, places like Uganda, Kenya, Uganda, Nigeria, and created a very evangelical kind of Anglican church. Uh, you have other places where more high church, more sort of Anglo-Catholic people went in South Africa, for example, or the Pacific uh, Islands. And so you have a different kind of Anglicanism there. And often these people haven't met each other. They might not even recognize that they're all Anglican, you know, because they're coming from a, a different strand of Anglicanism. Whereas in Western countries like the United States or, of course, in England, these different strands live side by side. And so people are, are, are aware of it. So that's one uh, big difference. I think it's also true to say that in the third world, the developing world, like other churches, the Anglican church is growing, um, you know, sometimes quite dramatically, uh, whereas in its historic homelands, it's declining, however you, you, you read that. And so that's another issue. What is the future of Anglicanism? Well, no one can predict uh, this with any degree of certainty, but 
my suspicion is that there will be a lot of change at one level. Uh, I mean, I think the church will move much more into the developing world and reflect that, uh, that a hundred years from now, um, you know, the impetus will be very much from Africa uh, and Asia and so on, um, and not from the Western uh, world, uh, but that in other ways, um, perhaps in, in, in form, liturgy and so on, uh, it will look pretty much the same. It'll be tossed up in the air and, and fall down again. But when it falls down, the pattern will be recognizable, is what I suspect. That's what's happened before. And one just imagines that's what will happen again. But, of course, I don't know, um, you know, uh, what, what it will all end up as. And it may well be that Anglicanism will cease to exist as a, as a definable form of Christianity because it will merge with, with, with other things. I mean, you know, if you go back a 100 years, 100 years ago, there were huge differences between Anglicans and, say, Lutherans or Reformed or Baptists or whatever. But now we all work together uh, and we rub off on each other. And it's sometimes hard to tell who's who uh, and, and what's what. You know, I mean, it's not the divisions are much um, more blurred now than they used to be. And that probably is a sign of the future, too. Dr. Bray, you know that we like to end these interviews in a personal and explicitly spiritual mode, asking people what God has been teaching them recently. We don't have to tell any of our listeners that this past year has been something of a crucible for all of us. Is there anything that God is doing in your life or teaching you coming out of this crucible that you might share with our listeners by way of uh, a concluding blessing to them? I think the, the, the great thing that I've learned from the past year is how totally dependent on God I am and must consciously be. You know, if you'd asked me a year ago what I would be doing now, I would have had no idea. You know, if I wouldn't have known, for example, that uh, when I left Beeson last March, that I would spend five months, the next five months, basically a prisoner in my own house under lockdown. I didn't know that I would be reading the Bible more deeply, taking things off my shelf like the sermons of Martin Lloyd-Jones and so on, and working through them in a way that I'd, I'd never really done before. And just using the time you know, to grow spiritually, to grow closer to God, and to be aware, first of all, of how much I owe to him. I mean, how grateful I need to be uh, you know, for all that he has done for me uh, in the past. And, you know, I, I really need to to understand that. And, and and that's been the thing. And just that sense of dependence, learning, uh, you know, learning to depend on him in a way that I, I, I hadn't done previously. So uh, I would put that first. And then I would say, too, that I've, I've learned about myself just how, how, deeply sinful I really am. I mean, I can always learn more, I suppose, on that score. But, you, you know, and how overwhelming the grace of God is. Uh, you, you know, Luther wasn't wrong <laughs> on, on that point, that, you know, we, we're, we're taught to see ourselves, uh, you know, as, as sinners uh, saved by grace. And that the more you, 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 you understand the grace of God, uh, the more you understand the seriousness of your own sin. And I think that's a very positive thing. 
you know that it's it, you you could say oh you're sitting around feeling miserable because you're a terrible sinner and i said well no the the more i realize that the more i realize just how great god is and and what he's done i mean i've always been mystified by the fact that you know god has reached out to save me because i can't imagine you know why he would do that why me <laughs> and uh, and that's that's his his marvelous love uh, you know and i've learned a lot about the love of god and seen him at work in my own life you know in the past 12 months and i would say that to people i would recommend that that they you know look beyond covid-19 look beyond lockdown look beyond all the things that uh, you know seem to be uh, getting in the way of our life right now and and use it I mean, the apostle paul spent three years in the desert preparing for his ministry what did he do well i mean he just i suppose got closer to god and prayer and so on we're going through our own kind of mini desert right now and and i think that's what we need to do just say well don't sit about moaning about all the things you might do do what you can you know in the circumstances and remember that god is with us you know whatever situation we're in and he's using this time um you know to build us up uh, to make us see what our priorities should be and preparing us I, that's what he's been doing with me and I, i hope and pray that he does it with everybody amen simple but very profound words of wisdom from one of our most seasoned scholars dr gerald bray one time anglican professor of divinity at beeson divinity school allegedly moving into retirement but actually serving very busily as a research professor of divinity here at Beeson and the interim shepherd of our Anglican Institute and student group thank you very much Dr. Bray for being with us thank you to all of you for tuning in uh, we are grateful for you we covet your prayers we are praying for you regularly and we say goodbye for now been listening to the Beeson podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.